Brothers and sisters, hear the good news. In the Old Covenant, the central place of worship was the temple. There God met with his people, and there God placed his name. In Jesus, though, the Old Covenant has been torn down, and the New Covenant has arisen in its place. In the New Covenant, there is no brick-and-mortar temple, but a temple made of living stones of people, with Christ himself as the cornerstone. To those who rejected Jesus and clung on to the Old Covenant, this cornerstone became a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. But to you, he became the cornerstone on which you are being built up into a spiritual house to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Coming to him, you are living stones, choice and precious in the sight of God. You are now a people for God's own possession. You were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You once did not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. In you, God has placed his name. In gathering as living stones as the spiritual house of God, the name of Jesus is proclaimed in you, through you, and by you. Brothers and sisters, having truly confessed our sins, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, and the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. Let all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. God's word to us this morning begins in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 6. Hear the word of the Lord. And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men in white white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven." Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers." And at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, Brethren, the scripture had to been had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was counted among us and received his portion in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field was called Hakodama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no man dwell in it, and his office let another man take. It is therefore necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until that day that he was taken up from us, one of these should become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou Lord who knowest the hearts of all men, Show which one of these two has chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. We'll turn now to 2 Chronicles chapter 21. Verse 
beginning in verse 1. Then Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Jehoram, his son, became king in his place. And he had brothers, the sons of Jehoshaphat, Azariah, Jehiel, Zechariah, Azariahu, Michael, and Shephatha, and all these were the sons of Jeho- Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. And their father gave them many gifts of silver, gold, and precious things, with fortified cities in Judah. But he gave the kingdom to Jehoram, because he was the firstborn. Now when Jehoram had taken over the kingdom of his father and made himself secure, he killed all his brothers with the sword and some of the rulers of Israel also. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab did, for Ahab's daughter was his wife. And he did evil in the sight of Yahweh. Yet Yahweh was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant which he had made with David, and since he had promised to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. In his days, Edom revolted against the rule of Judah and set up, uh, set up a king over themselves. Then Jehoram crossed over with his commanders and all his chariots with him, and it came about that he arose by night and struck down the Edomites who were surrounding him and the commanders of the chariots. So Edom revolted against Judah to this day. Then Libna revolted at the same time against his rule, because he had forsaken Yahweh, God of his fathers. Moreover, he made high places in the mountains of Judah and caused the inhabitants of Jerusalem to play the harlot and led Judah astray. Then a letter came to him from Elijah the prophet, saying, Thus says Yahweh, God of your father David, Because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat your father, in the ways of Asa king of Judah, but have walked in the way of the kings of Israel and have caused Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to play the harlot, as the house of Ahab played the harlot. And you have also killed your brothers, your own family who were better than you. Behold, Yahweh is going to strike your people, your sons, your wives, and all your possessions with a great calamity. And you will suffer sickness, a disease of your bowels, until your bowels come out because of the sickness day by day. Then Yahweh stirred up against Jehoram the spirit of the Philistines and the Arabs who bordered the Ethiopians. And they came against Judah and invaded it, and carried away all the possessions found in the king's house together with his sons and his wives, so that no son was left to him except Jehoahaz, the youngest of his sons. So after all this, Yahweh smote him in his bowels with an incurable sickness. Now it came about in the course of time, at the end of two years, that his bowels came out because of his sickness, and he died in great pain. And his people made no fire for him like the fire for his fathers. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years, and he departed with no one's regret, and they buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. Let us please turn now to the back of your bulletin, and we'll read together as a congregation Psalm 76. Psalm 76. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war, Selah. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. The slot-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgments, and the earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth, Selah. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Lord God, we thank you that you invite us into your throne room. We thank you that we have been washed clean in the blood of Christ. And this morning, we've had our feet washed from traveling through this wicked world and we participating in the wickedness and you forgive us so that we can come in clean and whole. And Lord, now we need sanctification. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. Speaking about God, this psalm says, He chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. And he built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth which he had founded forever. He also chose David, his servant, and took him from among the sheepfolds, from the care of the ewes with the suckling lambs. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with his skillful hands. When God chose Jacob, Jacob, excuse me, David, he chose a shepherd boy. And of course that image then works its way all through scripture. Leaders are shepherds. Kings are shepherds. And Jesus tells us in the synoptics that we're not to be like the kings who lord it over them, but we're to be servant shepherds. Everybody in this room who's a little older has authority over somebody, whether it's your kids or your wife and kids or somebody at work. And we're called not to be like the world who lord it over people. Instead, we're to be servant shepherds. You have some great shepherds at NBC. Do you know that? John and David and Hyde. John has served since 1996, I do believe. David since 2007. And Hyde, even though he looks old, is just the young whippersnapper come to the crowd. And so today's passage really has a lot to do with them. Uh, we'll talk about it with respect to the rest of us as well, but it has a lot to do with them. Because when you think of the kings as you're working through Second Chronicles, and uh, you can say them in order up to where we are, can you not? Good time to learn them. Uh, when you think of the kings, it starts with David. And the whole line ultimately is compared to David. He guided them with his skillful hands. And if you want to know about his guiding, you look at his life in First and Second Samuel, and you look at the Psalms. Because this is the wisdom of David the Psalms. It's his psalm book. Of course, it's God's, and it's our hymn book. All other hymns we sing, they're good, they're wonderful, God uses them, but they are not Holy Spirit-inspired. David led Israel skillfully because he was an inspired man. 
We come to Jehoram, and he doesn't live up to the meaning of his name whatsoever. Jehoram means Yahweh is exalted. Yahweh is high. But Jehoram was low. He's an awful man, arguably the worst Judah had, even worse than Manasseh, who comes right down at the end, because he built high places to lead the people astray on purpose. And so he got a shittim ending. Right? That's a place in Israel. He was detestable, and the sickness he was given was to show how detestable he was for two years. He needed that box that comes in the mail with discreet things inside of it. Jehoram is the son of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoram had a good father, certainly not a perfect father, but a good father. He did make some major mistakes. Turn, if you would, to uh, 2 Chronicles, and we want to just look at chapter 20 for a minute. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, and you come down to the end, and in verse 31 it says, now, Jehoshaphat reigned over Judah. He was 35 when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 25 years. And his mother's name was Azubah, the daughter of Shilhi. He walked in the way of his father Asa, and did not depart from it, doing right in the sight of Yahweh. In just a minute, we're going to see another terrible thing he did. But the overall statement of the scriptures inspired by the Holy Spirit is he did right in the sight of Yahweh. We'll see. Even in doing right, he blundered and caused great trouble for his son and for Israel in general, Judah. The high places, however, were not removed. Uh, the high places were not removed. The people had not yet directed. The word is not directed. The word is established. Then firmed up their hearts to the God of their fathers. They loved the high places. Well, uh, as you've noticed as we've been going through 2 Chronicles, the high places are mentioned with each of the kings so far. And uh, you'll see that at the beginning of a record, they're tearing them down, but at the end of the record, they're saying they're not gone. And I assume part of that is the people are putting them back up. But a high place is really a... When, when you move to false religion, the false religions grab their stuff from true religion. And the first sanctuary, the holy place of God, was Eden, the Garden of Eden, where he came to meet with Adam and Eve. And it was up on a mountain. It's a high place. And when you think about the Tower of Babel, that's a replica. Putting a pyramid up, a, a ziggurat up, so you can get up into heaven because the idea is you're up where God reigns from. It's a high place. And after all, God made man in his image to reign like he reigns, only man on the earth. So there are all kinds of high places. And uh, Solomon, who gains a tremendous report in the book of 2 Corinthians, 
is the one who married wives, foreign wives, which if you were reading the NBC prescribed Bible reading program, ha, ha, ha. you read in Deuteronomy, you're not supposed to go take wives from those people because they'll lead you astray. So Solomon was, well, he doesn't say he worshipped at him, but for his wife from Moab and his wife from uh, the Ammonites and his wife from the Zidonians, he gave them high places so that they could go burn incense. Turn, if you would, to 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 2 says, The people were still sacrificing on the high places because there was no house built for the name of Yahweh until those days. This is telling about Solomon now. Now, Solomon loved Yahweh walking in the statutes of his father David, except he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there because that was the great high place Solomon offered a thousand ascensions on that altar. So high places are just things you put up in the air, and lo and behold, when you come to the Passover, it's in an upper room. When you come to Acts chapter 20, you go up into an upper room. You see, people understood symbolism. We, we don't quite think that way today. We're, we're more uh, science-oriented, precision, mathematical, all that kind of stuff. But they lived it out. And so if you're going to go worship Yahweh, you don't do it down here. You go up into a mountain. And after all, that's where Yahweh chose to put his name. And you'll notice Zion there are psalms about it. Beauty in its elevation, says Psalm 48. Because God's up there. But of course, when Israel moved out of the desert into the promised land, God told him, okay, everybody's been doing what's right in your own eyes, and we're not going to do that anymore. What you're going to do, Deuteronomy chapter 12, is from now on, you're going to go to the place where the tribe that God picks to put his name there. You're going to go there, and you're going to seek him there where he puts his name at his house. And you're going to bring all of your offerings and all of your first fruits and all of your ascensions and all of your peace offerings and the tithe of your hand and you're going to come with your family, and you're going to come with a Levite in your land, and you're going to come and you're going to eat that tithe right there at the house in the presence of Yahweh. Well, of course, you know, you work your way through, and, and we find out, well, what's chosen is Judas chosen, and then the city of David comes about, and then Mount Moriah is chosen, and it's all got this name called Zion, and it's up high. It's not the highest mountain in Israel, but it's, but it's high. And now, all other, Deuteronomy 12, is very clear, very clear. If you look at it, in Deuteronomy 12, okay, you come here and worship, and all this other worship that's going on around you, you tear it down and burn it up. No more high places. No mother sacrifices when you go up. No, don't do that anymore. You come where God's name is. You come where God lives. That's what you do. But Jehoram, Yahweh is high, 
went really low. He becomes king. And there are a few sins here stated about him. But the one sin that's stated about him is he led the people astray, he built high places, and he caused the people to play the harlot. Now, we're proper people, so we speak in a proper way in public, so we should, and we teach our kids not to say certain words, so we should, but the Bible is earthy. If we translated it in some places the way it's really written in the Hebrew, your face would turn red. And uh, because we've been nicey about all of this, this is only one reason, then uh, pretty soon things that are very shameful aren't so shameful anymore. So I picked up a book. It's called uh, Premarital Sex in America. How Young Americans Meet, Mate, and Think About Marriage. It's pretty interesting. But what's sad about it, and unfortunately, it's made its way into the Christian community, what's sad about it is premarital sex is just acceptable. So, you think about Dinah going to see Shechem, the Shechemites, and uh, Shechem lays with her, and you know the whole story, and the two boys, Levi and Simeon, they derive a scheme and they end up killing everybody and taking the spoils and the wives and the goods to themselves. And Jacob says to his sons, you've made me odious. Should Shechem be allowed to treat our sister like a harlot? Then in Deuteronomy chapter 22, a young man gets married and he has suspicions that his wife is not a virgin. And so he accuses her. And the parents have the credentials to show she's a virgin. If the credentials can't be found and it can't be demonstrated, then she is stoned. Why? Because she played, it's not called premarital sex, she played the harlot in Israel. No, the way we think today is, uh, everybody's doing it, and after all, God will forgive me. And God does forgive, mind you. It's not quite as bad as adultery, but nearly as bad. But here in Chronicles, Joram, Jehoram, is teaching the people to play the harlot. And so he's taking something they understand out here in the physical world, and he's taking it over here to this spiritual world, and he's saying, you know, you have a man. Yahweh is his name. And now what you've done is you've gone and sought other men. You've played the harlot. And Jehoram's the one who did it. He built these high places, and he took people over there to serve other gods. Well, now, you, you see a bit of his character, because uh, we're leading to this most terrible thing he did. But you see, when he becomes king, he's the firstborn, the primogenitor. And there are all these brothers of his that are listed. Now, you have to remember, I know you remember, that kings took several wives. We just saw a few chapters ago that Asa took 14 wives. And Jehoram himself 
uh, these, these, these names that are listed here in uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 21, these names that are listed are, uh, they're all names that end in Yah or El, they're about God, and they're all brothers of Jehoram's, but they're not, they're all what we call half-brothers. In other words, Jehoram has lots of wives, and here are all these guys, and you notice that Jeho Jehoshaphat sets it up, he's trying to, he's, he's, a, he's a wise person, he's smart. And so he gives all of these guys silver and gold and fortified cities, but he puts, he puts uh, Jehoram as king because he's firstborn. But you see in the story, probably all these guys are the firstborn of their mother. They all have different mothers. And so you have a whole string of guys who want to be king, they're firstborns. But Jehoram's, or, or Jehoshaphat's first firstborn is Jehoram. So he's king. And you recall in Kings that Solomon, and uh, when, when David was getting ready to die, there was a problem in the transfer of power to Solomon. Another brother grabbed it first. So what Jehoram says to himself is he says, self, okay, what am I going to do to make sure I remain as king? So what did he do? Well, what the text really says is he rose up against his father's kingdom. How did he do that? He killed his brothers. See, he took all the other firstborns out of the way, and he's established now as the man. But then we're told. He was 32 when he became king, and he reigned eight years. Just to let us know, no, you can't get away with this kind of stuff. He had a short life because he did evil. Then we're told, verses 6 and 7, that God would have destroyed him except God had a covenant with David and promised there would always be a lamp. Well, that goes back to, it's, it's found several places in Kings and Chronicles. Uh, but I want to read you something. And I saw no temple in the city, for its, excuse me, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple was the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. So, there's this promise that God has made in the Davidic covenant. Your son will sit on the throne and I'll be his father and he'll be my son. And his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. First son was Solomon. Didn't turn out to be Solomon. Second son, Rehoboam. Didn't turn out to be Rehoboam. Third son, Abijah. Didn't turn out to be Abijah. Fourth son, Asa. Didn't turn out to be Asa. Fifth son, Jehoshaphat. Didn't turn out to be Jehoshaphat. Now we're down to Jehoram. But of course, you run all the way down. And remember, Chronicles is written when the people who have been exiled in 586 B.C. are coming back. And the chronicler is showing them, look, there's going to be a lamp. God promised a lamp. The light will never go out. 
And when you get to the end of the Bible, there it is. There's the lamp. Where? On a high mountain that comes down out of heaven. This city that is 1,500 miles high. And the Lord God's its light. And the Lamb is its lamp. So, God would have ruined David's family. In other words, Jehoram was so bad that God would have been justified in destroying the whole family as he did with the Omran dynasty and, and, and other dynasties. He just got rid of them, killed them all. They were so bad. But no, he had a covenant with David and a promise. So, a lamp. Well, then you have this, this uh, Judah territory and you got n cities, nations to the south who are tributaries like Edom and Libna to Jehoram. They have to pay tribute. They have to do what the king says. And they, they rebel. One of them gets their own king, and so Jehoram goes out and crushes them. But they're not really crushed. They're, they're like, uh, you know, what do you think is going to happen in, in, in Ukraine when Russia comes in and finally takes over? Do you think those people are going to love Putin? They're going to hate him. And they will do everything under the sun to undermine him. Well, that's what happened to Jehoram. Edom comes back and Libna comes back. And it was from the Lord. Why? Because he had forsaken Yahweh. His name is Yahweh's exalted. But he's just a way down low nothing guy. Now, I jumped around, so... I'm going back to 2 Chronicles chapter 20 now. Verse 34. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat, uh, the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat from first to last, they are written in the annals of Jehu, the son of Hanani, which is uh, recorded in the book of the kings of Israel. After this, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, allied himself with Ahaziah. So Ahaziah is the son of Ahab and he is wicked and he's a Baal worshiper even though his name means Yahweh upholds. And he's going to go into a business deal and build ships and go off to Tarshish and get gold and stuff like that. But along comes the prophet and says, no, you've done wickedly and your work's going to be destroyed and the ships were destroyed and that's the last thing that's said about Jehoshaphat. So Jehoshaphat, you know, he's a good king, good king. He makes an alliance with Ahab by having Ahab's daughter marry his son Jehoram and that turns out terrible and then he repents and good is done again and then Near at the end of his life, he has this failure again. And then you move into chapter 21 and you get Jehoram. So he's got a good father and he hasn't walked in the way of his father or his grandfather, but he has forsaken the Lord. But nevertheless, look, he's got an example. His dad failed twice. Big failures. Still called a good king. And his dad arranged a marriage with Athaliah. Athaliah means something like Yahweh has manifested his greatness. Now, when there's an alliance made between Ahab and Jehoshaphat through this marriage, 
what's being set up is this progress that's going to come to a climax in chapters 24 and 25. There's this, this, this thing being set up whereby Ahab is trying to hone in on Jehoshaphat. It's an alliance, but what does he want? He wants Israel and Judah joined together, reunited, and not Jehoshaphat as king, but himself as king. And how do we know this? Well, we know it partly because of what happens in the chapters ahead, but partly we know it because of what happened in the battle. He disguised himself, and he put Jehoshaphat out there as king. Why? Why did he do that? He wanted Jehoshaphat to die. He had on the kingly robes, and he wanted him to die in the battle. But God delivered him. So when we look at Jehoram, we have to remember, you know, like our kids, he didn't have perfect parents. And our kids, they pick up some of the good traits we have, and they pick up, unfortunately, some of the bad traits we have. And Jehoram saw what his dad did with Israel and Baal worshipers. And Jehoram had a mother that was a Zidonian and a Baal worshiper. So, I don't know how we would fare under those circumstances. He didn't fare very well. And so when you get down to chapter 21, verse 11, it says, after we discover he's killed his brothers, after we discover that he has um, fought against the Edomites and the Libnites, and God has allowed these people to plague him because he has forsaken the Lord. Then in verse 11 it says, Moreover, he made high places in the mountains of Judah and caused the inhabitants of Jerusalem to play the harlot and led Judah astray. Then a letter came to him from Elijah the prophet. Thus says Yahweh, God of your fathers, of your father David. Because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat, your father, or the ways of Asa, king of Judah, but have walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, Ahab your father-in-law, and have caused Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to play the harlot as the house of Ahab played the harlot. And you have also killed your brothers, your own family, your own flesh, who are better than you, better men than you are. So then he tells what's going to happen. Behold, the Lord is going to strike your people, your sons, your wives, and all your possessions with a great calamity. And this word calamity is the word for plague. It's the same word that's used when David sinned in numbering the troops and a great plague came. So here's Jehoram, and God's going to strike his people. God's going to strike his sons. God's going to strike his wives. And God's going to strike his possessions. And so God stirs up some invaders to come and invade. They're, 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 it's not a whole nation invading. It's, it's, uh, uh, it's like the SEAL team, something like that. They come in, and they come directly to the king's house, and they loot the king's house. All the goods are there. And remember, there's lots of wealthy stuff at the king's house. And they run off with all of his goods, and they run off with his wives, and they run off with his sons. And he's left to himself and his disease. 
The disease is a terrible disease. It's a disease that lasts for two years. And uh, he dies in great pains because his inners have become outers. His bowels came out of him. Kind of like what happened to Judas when he hung himself. It says in verse 19, Now it came about in the course of time, at the end of two years, it's a two-year process, that his bowels came out because of his sickness, and he died in great pain, and his people made no fire for him like the fire for his fathers. So when a king died in Judah, there was a, uh, a kind of funeral. They would bury him in the city of David where the kings were buried, and then they'd burn a great fire in honor of that king. And of course, fires go out. It's a picture that that king was supposed to be a light, like David, who led the sheep with skillful hands. They all got fires, but not Jehoram. No fire for him. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years and he departed with no one's regret. Now, the word depart is not the word depart. The word depart is walk. He didn't walk in the ways of his father, Jehoshaphat. He didn't walk in the ways of Asa. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. And here he walked in such a way that no one liked him. The word regret is the word delight. Nobody delighted in his walk. And they buried him in the city of David, but not among the kings. So he's a man who's not missed. Well, of course, he's an awful man. And he led the people astray. And he killed his own brothers, the whole royal pack of them. He killed them all. He's a terrible man. But what is his sin? His main sin is leading people into harlotry. Now, what you see from all of this is God had a plan in the Old Testament. He has a plan in the New Testament, too. But his plan in the Old Testament is, okay, Along comes David. He makes covenant with David. Tells David, your son's going to build a house. Solomon builds a house. God says, okay, here's what we're going to do. Now, all the stuff we've been doing around here, we're not going to do it anymore. You come to my house, and we'll visit there. You do your sacrifices there. You do your, your uh, eating there. Your, your, uh, all, all, everything's done there. You come there. Of course, in the New Testament, we don't have a physical house. We have a people temple. And the people temple is the church. Turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. The saints here the, means the Old Testament saints. And are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building, 
being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God's a dwelling of God in the spirit so in in Corinthians we're told that the church is the temple of God in Ephesians, the church is the temple of God. In 1 Peter, the church is the temple of God's living stone being built up. It's the imagery of the Old Testament being built up. And what happens is this people house is built in. In this people house is where the Holy Spirit lives. Now, there are two things to say about that. The first thing is, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, we don't belong to ourselves. We've been bought with a price. We're God's temple. The Spirit of God lives in us. So we're supposed to glorify God in our body. So here in just a little while, we're all going to scatter, and we're going to go all these different places, and what's going to happen is everybody here is going to walk around this earth with the Spirit of God living in them, and you're supposed to glorify God in your body because this is God's temple. But in 1 Peter and Ephesians and Corinthians... And Hebrews, there's not the temple just scattered, there's the temple gathered. And the temple gathered is what we're talking about in Ephesians. This house is growing, gathered, and the Spirit of God lives in them. Now, uh, there's two emphases. One is living, uh, you go to your house, you live. You live to glorify God. Then the other is you gather. What do you gather to do? You gather to worship. And there, you can worship outside when, of the gathering. You go home, you can pray with your wife, you can go in your closet and you can pray, you can sing songs. You are worshiping, but that's not the same as this temple that's being built. And see, what Jehoram was doing was destroying that temple. He was erecting other high places so people would not, would not come to the house of God and worship Yahweh. So I'm going to go back to my familiar passage, and I would like you to turn to it. It's in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. And I just want to close with this one little, well, let me just read verses 22 following. So, no, we better read the whole thing. Verse 19, since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the household of God, three things we do. We draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Second thing we do is let us hold fast the confession. The confession is homologia, logos. It's the one word. Let us hold fast the confession, which is our hope. God's word is where our hope lies. God's word is God talking. And so he says something, that's our hope. Without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. A third thing we do. And let us consider how to stimulate one another unto love and good deeds. And then with a little ending comment, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing there. Now, you know, and some of you think I'm crazy, maybe so, the day drawing near is not the day we're looking for. The day he's talking about has already passed. They were living in a context looking for A.D. 70. 
the day drawing near. But of course, in the midst of the growing persecution, what's the thing to do? The thing is, if you want to save your life, well, you don't want to be meeting with all the people who are being persecuted, the church, so you forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And you run off. And he goes on to tell what happens. If you do something like that, you are forsaking the faith. So he says, assembling ourselves together. We need to assemble. It is an intense assembly. So, you you know, you, you build up words in Greek, and you start with a single word, which means to gather. Then you put another prefix on it, and it means, okay, gather and gather together. And then you put another prefix on it, and you, you've made this just a, 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 an incredible, intense gathering. Now, I'm only mentioning that because it's in this context. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. It comes in a couple of other contexts, but notably it comes in the context of the Olivet Discourse, where angels are going to be set forth to gather the elect from the four corners of the earth. Now, if you have your eschatology correct, that is talking about our day. That's what's happening right now. The elect are being gathered from the four corners of the earth, not by angels. Let's translate it for what it means. Messengers, by messengers. People like you and me and other people gathering. So... The church is being put together like this. And every Lord's Day, we display that. And in this assembly, or in other assemblies all over the globe, other churches all over the globe, it's this tight, knit gathering, a temple that you can't get at home and we're called to be a part of it. That's what the church is, the called out ones, the gathered ones. And the Spirit lives in each of us individually, but the Spirit somehow lives in the church a little differently. And you and I have the Spirit by measure. Jesus Christ did not have the Spirit by measure. And I'm just one little person over here, and I got my measure, and you got your measure, and you got your measure, and your measure. But when we're all together, we have a lot bigger measure of the Spirit. And this is what moves us forward. This is what Jehoram tore apart. Oh, no, no, no. We don't just need one house. We need all kinds of high places. We don't just need one God. No, let's be a harlot and have many men. You see, he was very wicked. So let me just tell you, your shepherds, David, John, and Hyde, are great. They will care for you like David cared for Israel. They will guide you with a hand of wisdom. You can count on them. Let's stand. Father, such a dreary passage. Just an awful man. And yet, by way of contrast, we see your grace upon your church, upon the church of the Old Testament, with David, the grand type of Christ. And we have Christ who shepherds us. And we thank you that The Spirit of Christ indwells each of us individually and the Spirit of Christ indwells the church and we also know that you are God work by means. And we give you thanks right now because the means you work by in this assembly are three great men. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen.